0: You only get out the game what you put into it, Mm Shirley. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Yeah, I regret it very much. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that.
1: Welcome to Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Michael Bennett.
2: Yeah, so my name is Michael Bennett and I'm a Director of Player Wealth at the Professional Football Association, PFA. Um, my role entails looking after the emotional support of our members, both well, former and current members, and just raising awareness around mental health, uh, in general, mental health in, in football. So that's my kind of remit in a quick nutshell.
1: Joining me as usual is the two the two beautiful boys, the two fellas in my life. It's Ryan and Ant. How are we, fellas? You look happy, both of you. Extreme. Ryan looks comfortable. He's sat with the dog on his lap. And uh, Ant, you just got a lovely little grin on your face. Well, he does look comfortable, but he also looks a bit wary <laughs> what the dog's going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's quite a predictable dog, I would say. Just kind of sitting. You know, she'll probably go to sleep in a minute.
3: Yeah, she keeps getting really surprised every time I touch her head. Like, <laughs> what is that? Oh, she's gone now.
1: Oh, she's gone over to Ant now. This is, this is gold, isn't it, for the listeners. Mm. How are we anyway, fellas? Still a bit raspy from Tramia's playoff game on Friday. Yeah, so... On Thursday, sorry. Yeah, so we're recording this on, on Saturday morning. Obviously, the episode when you'll be listening to it is Monday morning or Monday afternoon or at some point in your leisure time. Um, but we, the three of us, went to... Our first match for a very very long time, didn't we? On Thursday night, did we enjoy it, chaps? Um,
0: yeah, do you, do you know what I did? Because there was more fans in there, so obviously I went to the two that yes, we did. before, and it was a bit like quite well, it was freezing cold as well. The first two, you, you, like, no one anywhere near yet, and then mm. this time obviously having about four thousand in there, it was just a lot more fun. It was a bit nicer, a little bit warmer, a little bit more riding on the games and. It,
1: Felt a bit more like a football match, didn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Apart from when they scored... Well, it's funny, it's a lot like a trammy match. The opposition
1: scored two. <laughs> um, and we only scored one. But it was like
0: one of them... You know when you see them games in like La Liga or something where none of the fans can travel? I yeah. thought it, they scored a goal and like there's just no
1: noise. They're yeah, like, see, oh. that's always the indicator, isn't it? Because I presume... Were you in the cup, were you? Yeah. So we were all at the opposite end to where Morecambe scored their two goals. Yeah. And normally the indicator, when there's a bit of a scrappy goal... Is it the fans go? Wah. Yeah, and there's and th- there was nothing. Like there was their subs and stuff celebrated, but yeah. they were obviously as unaware of the goal going in as us because both of them were dead scrappy and you didn't know they were in until the more players wheeled away.
0: Do you reckon there's just like loads of like fellas or or, or women as well just sitting in like? near the away and going who do I shout at now like there's no fans here like, so
1: just start shouting at them each other should we shout at each should I shout at myself <laughs> yeah but I, I, I'm the same as you I really enjoyed it It was just nice being back in there I was saying to the pair of you afterwards I was like oh god I wish there was parts of the game when I was sitting there and I was like why am I that I hate this so much like it was, it was just like that I, I went so I went with my brother and there was there was a good like 20 minutes where I just couldn't look at him or to say anything to anyone. I just shouted like frustrated things sort of midway through the second half. You know when you're just watching your team toil around, you think we're, we could be here all week and not score yeah. like all week. And it was so frustrating. I was like... They, oh, I'd, it's
0: I'd, part of it though, I mean, isn't it? I know. And yeah. I was
1: like, I've kind of enjoyed not having to do this part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, fantastic all the same. What about you, Ryan? You enjoy it?
3: Yeah, just celebrating the goal alone was just <laughs> amazing. Yeah, have done that, it in
1: ages. Yeah. Did you move or did you stay?
3: Yeah, I moved everywhere, all yeah. over the show. <laughs> I was down the stairs and we yeah. got told to go back to my seat by a steward. It was nice, it was nice. That first 45 minutes was great. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Just I got like five minutes in and it was just like dust coming on my throat. I <laughs> like couldn't speak, just wasn't match fit <laughs> at all.
1: Today's episode we're speaking to Michael Bennett. Michael is the Director of Player Welfare at, at the PFA and he was someone, for obvious reason, that we wanted to get on for for a while and we actually got his, his contact details through a previous guest Chris Uolumo so big thanks to Chris for, for sorting that out for us and you know Michael was very happy to come on and speak to us and you know for those who don't know so the PFA is in essence the union that represents footballers so for it's kind of all things that a union would represent anyone for employment, well-being that type of thing and Michael's role essentially is to manage the mental health provisions for footballers and that's what we got him on to, to speak about he's been there about 10 years now uh, and yeah, he used to be a footballer himself Michael went through some difficulties at the end of his career So that was a, you know, he's got a sort of lived experience really Which, you know, is always, can be can be beneficial for these things as well So that was, that was interesting to talk to him about as well We always have a theme and would you like to tell the listeners what today's theme is, mate?
0: Yeah, I think I can try and get this right Making sure mental health provisions are easily accessible Is that right? Did we get it right? You, you were in the right ball. Paul. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's along the, that line, isn't it? Yeah. So obviously it's a it's a big topic at the moment and it should, should have been a big topic for years. Um, the amount of... I think you, you'll hear a few statistics come through. You and Mike talk about it a lot, um, about there's a few surveys that came out uh, about how many footballers were going to <laughs> these services during lockdown. And... The stuff that, that Michael comes out with is perfect, and you're thinking that it is there. Like, and it's getting better, and it's better. I think he says there's like 200 therapists working with them, mm. um, which is just it's an unbelievable amount. It's probably not enough just yet, but mm. it's definitely there. And yeah. I think that's I think what he does and what he the ease and he, you know he's a really accessible person himself as well, which I think is more important because if if the lead of that organisation is someone who isn't seen as good like we've seen with uh, is it Gordon Taylor Gordon Taylor, yeah. then you're not going to get the best at that service mm. Michael seems to be a, a really accessible person he's gone through it like you said yeah. as well um so he's very relatable to young players older players and haven't played in the game as well at a professional level it's fantastic so yeah I think it's um I just think it, yeah the, the ease and the accessibility of it it just seems to be getting better and better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So our our, our, our uh, theme, as Pop alluded to, <laughs> <laughs> is uh, ensuring mental health support is easily accessible to footballers. So that's our theme. And if you pick up on anything that we haven't, and you want us to discuss, then you can email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail or you can tweet us. Our handle is at mark underscore man, and don't forget to use that hashtag. Where's the talking, lads? So we're now going to hand you over to Michael Bennett, and then we'll see you briefly on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking.
4: Obviously, there's a lot of players that fall under. You just said the PFA, from your stars all the way down to uh, players who maybe not as well known, don't earn as much money. What does your day-to-day role entail?
2: So if you're talking about before the lockdown, uh, it would have been, it would have been um, a lot around um, engaging with the players. Uh, a lot of my work is around um, moving from a service led approach, which is me as a former player of 20 years, using my experience and my, uh, what I've gone through from an emotional standpoint in football, uh using that experience to implement support for players uh and that, that's that's kind of a service-led approach that's me thinking this is what the players need uh, now i've moved to a kind of needs led approach which is now asking the players what it is they think should be in place so they can access to, access it and feel comfortable about it so my day-to-day would be uh, delivering workshops to clubs uh 18s 23s and first team players the key behind it ryan was is, is the importance of getting in front of the players and, and sharing this information with them. So my day-to-day will be um, overseeing the department, overseeing the staff in the department, but more often going in and delivering workshops as well and trying to get a message across about the player welfare department, what mental health looks like from a football context and how they can seek support if they need it.
4: And do you find that you have to go out to the clubs and try to get in front of them or are you seeing a lot more of the clubs coming to you now and saying, we're, we're interested in more support and how we can handle our players better in this department?
2: I think it's a bit of both. I think um, initially it was I felt that it was important that we got in front of the players. You know, if you get in front of the players and you give the message direct and you give them the, the flyers and the business cards, you know, there is no pressure on them to, to feel uncomfortable. People might know that they're seeking support. So if you give everybody a card, um, you know, no one knows who's accessing the support. So I feel it was important to get in front of the, the, the players. And we've been doing that for the last you know, two and a half years now. Um, I think the clubs have bought into it a bit more since we've... Um, we developed a conference in 2017 called Injured, uh, which is at St George's Park. And the idea behind the conference was to showcase how the importance of, if you had a leg injury, you was injured. If you have emotional injury, emotional issues, you're injured too, they should be treated the same way. And it was more about show, showing, sharing good practice, uh, clubs talking about what they have in place and clubs talking about what they haven't got in place. So the sharing of good practice was really, really beneficial. And I think since those conferences, 2018 and 19, um, we've seen a more of a, a drive in, in clubs coming to us to deliver the workshops.
4: Absolutely, it's it's a theme that comes up on here quite a lot. That um, sort of mental injury is just as important as a, a physical one, and how you recover from that. And I believe your own career was was cut short following a, a serious injury, so you can actually um, offer quite a lot because you've, you've been through that process yourself. What what was that time in your period like when when you were going through that injury and how you recovered not just physically but emotionally as well?
2: Well, well I mean, yeah, I mean that that when I tell the story, I mean it gets the players engaged because it's obviously obviously they recognise it. So for me, it was a young lad. Um, who uh, I'll say now had no aspirations to be a professional footballer. You know, it wasn't on my radar. In my On my radar was to you know, just play football to keep out of trouble. I come from South East London, which is right behind the old den. So everyone knows, new post knows what kind of area that's like. Um, and the idea for me was just to stay out of trouble uh, and keep on a straight and narrow. And, and for me, it was about to go to uni- go to university u- university, and get away from my family for three years and get up to no good. <laughs> that was the kind of the, the plan. Um, Uh, Luckily for me, and unluckily for me, however you want to look at it, you know, I got uh, scouted by Charlton, play for my Sunday team, uh, to which I responded, who are Charlton, when the guy approached me. So that's kind of how naive I was around football. Um, I I went away and spoke to my parents and my mum said, no, education. Dad said, no, give the boy a chance. So we kind of came to a compromise at Charlton that I could sign with them, but continue my education. And, you know, going into the football club, it was a real eye-opener and real shock to me, Ryan and Dan, because I'd not been in the football uh, system at all. So, you know, you're going in as a 16-year-old and you're going to this professional game and you're not sure what to expect. And for me, uh, I would say the first six months were, were a nightmare because it took me time to get used to the, the, the demands of the game. It took me a, t- a while to get used to the banter in the changing room and mm-hmm. um, that sort of stuff. Uh, but once I got into it, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I, I was off and running, um, was in the first team within a year. Uh, 17 uh, and the biggest transition for me that people might not think about this was that when I had to leave the youth team change room and go into the first team change room that was a big transition for me because you have a lot of laugh and jokes with the youth team change room but when you get to the first team change room it's all about winning and and pressure and and that was very hard for me to kind of deal with but you know fast forwarding you know I got on with it became a regular uh, ended up Play for England uh, in the under 20s and then literally coming back from England, there's a lot of talk about transfer speculation for me. And we play QPR on the on, on Saturday. And I think my old presumption of wanting to impress people, I went for football that I probably shouldn't have gone for, kind of left my leg hanging uh, trying to nick it past the player. And his knee hit my knee and he's done my um, ACL. Uh, and that was in 1991. So back then, ACLs were career threatening injuries. So for me, who's not had an injury before and having to deal with being out for nine months was really, really uh, tough for me. And um, I had a, 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 my, my girlfriend and my family were there and very supportive, but they li- really didn't understand football. So <laughs> for me at that time, you wanted to speak to people about, you know, your emotions your fears, your doubts, you know, I had six months left in my contract. I just bought a new car. I just bought a new flat. And all those emotional worries around how am I gonna pay for them were really in my mind constantly. And if you think about going to training, having a treatment and leaving training at one o'clock and going home to a flat, which is empty, and just you in the flat, you just constantly overthinking, overthinking, overthinking. I think that led to my you would say, I would say depression now. There wasn't there wasn't the terminology there at that time, but I think that it was depression because I just went home, closed the curtains, put the TV on and just sat on the sofa and just Watched TV and fell asleep and World Cup and just did this recycle all over again. So it was really, really difficult for me back then. But um, I think the key for me that got me out of it, if I'm honest, was that they sent it to a rehabilitation place called Lillishaw. I'm not sure if you've heard of Lillishaw. Yeah. It's a, yeah, yeah. So I got sent to Lillishaw and was there for six weeks. So that was a real blessing for me because I was around other players that were in the same boat with the same issues as me and were able to talk to each other and kind of share stories. So that was the way that got me out of that mindset. But as you said, Ryan, uh, for me, the key element was that I came back physically fit and rearing to go, but mentally I wasn't the same player. Yeah, and Mentally, uh, I always thought that I'd go into games thinking that next tackle could end my career. So you're not fully focused on football. you concerns about what if, what if, what if, and, and that, that was a real, real battle for me.
4: Was there anybody in football you turned to or in the, that early part of your career that was, was there for you, you reached
2: out to? No, there was no one there. Um, I even remember going to see my manager and to say, "Look, this is my concerns," and it just 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 crack on, you'll be fine. Do you know what I mean? Um, I would say that a, a good friend of mine and a mentor for me at the time was Garth Crooks, and and I was I was able to then speak to Garth at a later stage just to explain and express my concerns and stuff, and that was a good outlet for me. But in terms of anything professional, uh, no, nothing wasn't there. And I think that's why the catalyst for what I'm doing now is 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 the reason behind it. I think.
4: Did you realize that that? At the time that there wasn't really anything in place or was it in reflection years later when you retired, when you kind of thought that's not right?
2: I think it was in reflection. Uh, I think you just get on with it. You just, you know, you want to get into the team, you want to get that playing. So I think it's more in reflection. And I think the reflection came when I actually left the professional game at, at 29 and went and played uh, non-league football. I think the reflection came then because you have, you have more time in your hands. You only train Tuesdays and Thursday, you play Saturday, so you've got more time in your hands during the week. And it was more of a chance for me to reflect on that. And then when I was reflecting on it, I realised that even that the non-league team I was playing for, players would constantly come up to me and ask my advice about life issues, not just football, life issues. And, you know, there was me reflecting on where I'd come from was offering that support that I never had to them. So that, that was the key. So I think it was more a reflection in the latter part of my career, 31, 32, uh, that, you know, I realised that, you know, there wasn't nothing for me there. And that's probably why I didn't reach the heights that my football career should have reached.
4: And after your career, you then set up the Unique Sports Council and, um, and trained as a council yourself. And I suppose that was also off the back of the difficulties you went through.
2: Do you know what, uh, Ryan? It, it, was a, it was a weird one, really, because I would I'd, I'd thought about, you know, at, at that time we played football, 35 was at age when everyone retired. Um, so for me, playing only football at 31, you know, I thought to myself, I've got four years to try and get my, myself ready for this retirement at 35. But wasn't sure what to do. Um, I did my uh, UEFA coaching badge, uh, became a qualified coach, took me 18 months to do that and then realised after about six, seven months that coaching wasn't for me. I just didn't have the patience. So I really had to think about another pathway uh, and I was going to be an agent and I thought, no, that's a bit of a shark infested water. I'll I'll stay away from that. Um, and then I just thought you know what let me just go back to academia because as I said my mum was very academic and you know and academic uh, academia was part of the family structure so I decided to go back to college and try and do my maths in English and just get back on the academic pathway uh, but when speaking to a careers officer when trying to do that it then came out from the careers officer that listened to my story and my background she then said to me Mr Bennett you should do counselling and I was like counselling what do you mean and she was like you know you're, you've got active listening skills people come up to you and are drawn to you and talk about their issues why don't you get skilled in the area and do it professionally so that's what happened uh, in 2004 I became a qualified counsellor in 2004 I retired from the, the game and decided to set up unique sports counselling which was aimed at offering counselling support to players uh, that wasn't there when I was playing.
4: And, and just before you made that decision what was your relationship like with football at the time obviously a bit of a crossroads and you didn't really get into football at the start, for the love of it. So at that point, was you frustrated? Was you, how was you feeling?
2: I think you know what. I think the blessing for me was that um, you're playing in in in, in not just not only football, but you're playing in with change rooms that aren't the same as what you're used to. You're, and pitches pictures you're not used to, fans you're not as much fans as you used to, um, washing your own kit you know that you're not used to. So it was altogether enlightening experience, I'd say. Um, I would say that the, I did lose the love of the game when I left the professional game, and I think part-time football was the reason why I played part-time football, so I didn't, it wasn't 100% on football, and it gave me the opportunity to think about stuff outside of the game, and I've got a young family of four, so that, was, that was, helped me as well. But it was, um, for me, it was the fact that I did my coaching badge and the fact that I was studying, my focus wasn't on football my focus was on these other things. So I think that made me enjoy football a little bit more the latter part of my career because it wasn't fully focused on football. So I think for me, initially I lost the passion when I left the professional game, but going to play non-league football and, 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 and doing some educational work and training uh, helped to bring the passion back before I left the game.
4: And then you, you end up going on to be uh, Director of Player Welfare in 2001 at the PFA. Uh, it was the same year that we unfortunately lost Gary Speed as well.
2: 2011, yeah. 2011, Ryan. Right. 2011,
4: yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, 10 years since then, there's obviously been a, a big change in attitude towards football and towards mental health. And firstly, how much did Gary Speed's death change the conversation on mental health and football? And what do you sort of think the biggest changes have been in those 10 years?
2: I think that the, Gary Speed was, 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 was massive. I, I think be, just before Gary Speed, um, I, I was initially, I came on to the PFA in 2007 and I came as an education advisor. So what I was doing was basically going into clubs and talking about education, the importance of education, because what, what I found, Ryan, was that uh, speaking to my older peers and, and my players that I played with that had left the game, the issues that they encountered were after they transitioned out of the game, their issues arise when they left the game. And so I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. So if they had some sort of career pathway or some education that they could go into after leaving the game, it made the transition a bit more smoother uh, and they've got something to go into. What we found was that players were leaving the game and, and had no pathway to go into. So they ended up doing a job they had to do rather than they wanted to do because they still got bills to pay. And so you leave a game of football uh, and you, you kind of kicked out this big house. I call it a big house that in this house you're in, everything's done for you. Do you, know what I mean? you haven't got to do anything apart and get up, get ready, don't play football, because the kit's been put out for you, the, the, uh, the, your food's been done for you, uh, your massages, it, all the treatment, all of it's done for you, you know, everything. Um, so you get kicked out this big house, where'd you go? What'd you do? You don't know what to do. So I found that the important part for me was trying to get players to think about education and training whilst they were playing. Once I did that, I realised that I was able to offer players you know, under the radar support if they wanted it, just privately uh, by the PFA, which there was a a lot of take up on. And so myself and my, my colleague Simone Pound, we decided to put together I don't know if you've seen it, the um footballer's guidebook. If you if you, if you look up look it up there's a little look at it. Yeah, yeah the Footballer's guide what we called it and we put it in a cartoon format. The guy who did it was Roy Trevelyan uh Paul Trevelyan and he was one who, who wrote the the uh, Roy De Rovers comics and you might be you might be okay. too young to remember that um I was a Roy Rover fan sort of thing. So, <laughs> so he he put together the the, the the graphics for us and it was all about footballing stories so depression you know being away from your family coming from a foreign country playing in England um, it was about anxiety getting injured and not getting back in the team and we put this we sent this guideline out and it was a very great uptake on it particularly in America as well Um, and then with that going out then we had the Gary Speed situation and the shock of Gary Speed to the football world was catastrophic and for me even to this day we still don't know why Gary Speed took his life but when you look at a person that was at a Premier League, fantastic Premier League career, role model, was managing his country and then takes his life. It sent sh- sh- shockwave through football. And so my phone just began to ring off off, off the charts uh, in terms of people asking why people want to support, people concerned about their own well-being, people reading that guidebook and thinking about their own lifestyle. And it began to grow. And so I just went to uh, my, my CEO, Gordon Taylor, and just said to Gordon, look, a lot of stuff's been done at clubs from a phys- physical aspect, looking after the players physically, getting ready to perform an attack on a Tuesday, but nothing's in place emotionally. And I think we need to have a, a department that solely deals with the emotional needs of the players. And, and to be fair to Gordon, he was like, go and do what you've got to do. And so the, the, the birth of the player welfare department was birthed in 2011. And there we have it. Um, in 10 years moving forward, we've made I, I believe we've made great strides Uh, in in a particularly short space of time you know even us having this conversation now around mental health just showcases that um, I'm constantly being asked to talk about mental health I'm constantly being asked to talk about football and mental health uh, and and it's healthy so for me we're having the conversations now and and that's massive and the other key element for me is that we've got players now talking about their own experiences players high profile players that that, 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 um, Danny Rose's and the Peter Crouch's and you know even Gareth Southgate talking about his his issues and you know uh, and 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 Chris Kirkland and a load of others, uh, Kelly Smith and stuff like that. So we've got people talking about it. And I think what I'm trying to do and what we are trying to do with the football stakeholders is make it OK to talk about mental health. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do. And we'll keep trying to push that and make it as comfortable as possible. So players, are the idea for me, Ryan, will be that players are, are, are so comfortable that they're happy to go to their clubs to talk about their own mental health issues and it won't work against them. That's That's the ultimate goal for me. At the moment, I don't think that's the case. I think if players do go to their clubs... It, it, it might be seen as you've, you've got, you know, mentally strong or, you know, we need people that are mentally fully engaged to play on a Saturday and that might work against them. I'm not saying all clubs are like that, but that could yeah. be a, a, an, an issue. So I think where we come in as a PFA, because we're not part of the football club and because we're not part of the player's family, we're just a neutral union in place for them. That's why I think it works. And that's why I think players are comfortable coming and talking to us. I
4: must admit, as somebody who's not involved in football, but is a, a huge football fan, I, I can see sort of from the outside looking in the 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 changes that have took place in players being open enough. You mentioned there the Danny Rose article was was quite an eye opener at the time. Um, and I remember I remember coming back from just playing Sunday League today. I heard the news about Gary Speed and it, it just stopped you in your tracks. Uh, we've had quite a lot of ex footballers on who have talked about what you touched on there, which is not knowing what to do after football and yep. and maybe not being preemptive with it. They don't make a change until they hit rock bottom. It's almost a little bit too late at that point. Yep. I suppose a massive challenge for yourself and the PFA must have been when these when these guys are on top of the world, top of the game, and they're earning those sums of money. It's hard for them to ever think about life without it. How do you kind of try and catch that area just to raise the awareness even if they're not showing signs of of any difficulties, but you know that it could be around the corner if they don't maybe take it seriously?
2: I think the key I think the key we have a fantastic education department that that does a lot of work around this area and, and obviously the education department going to clubs and deliver workshops around transition from the game uh, and all we all we try to do is just continue to sow seeds sow seeds on a regular basis because as you say, you know, there's a different story from a player playing in the Premier League earning millions to a player playing in Division Two that's earning hundreds, do you know what I mean? And, and, and their transition is going to be different. Uh, the transition from the, they're still going to have the impact, emotional impact, doesn't matter how much money you've got in the bank, it's still going to have the emotional impact of self-worth, self-identity, who am I, what am I going to do, what am I waking up for, I've got no purpose. All of those things are triggered in all these players from whether you're playing Premier League football or playing uh, division two football or non-league football. So the, the key for us is that we at the PFA Education Department put on transition events and we try and put these on two or three times a season and we reach out to players and say, look, you know, this this event is around you looking at, you know, next steps after football. Now we know you don't want to talk about that because you just want to focus on your football, but gone are the days where your your career will finish at 35 like me. You know, we found that the transitions now happen in three or four different phases now. You know, you could be a 16-year-old who signed at a club uh, and as a scholar, trying to get your professional contract at 18, and you get turned down. You're transitioning out the game. You could be a, under 23s, trying to get that into the first team, being loaned out a couple of times, and can't get in, and can't get a club. You transition out the game. You could be a 25-year-old that, you know, is just a, a manager that doesn't fancy you, and you can't get a club because of the contract you're on that's a transition at the game. And then you have the older players that will get to 31, 32, 33 that will know that they're going to transition at the game. So there are four different points where we have to make sure we have the relevant support in place for the different transitions at the game. So we put these courses on. Uh, the uptake has become better each year. Uh, we've moved it from a kind of a weekend workshop to a day. I think because we're doing it a day, players are more able to come in the morning and leave in, in the afternoon. And that impact works better. So we've been doing this, uh, Ryan, for... Years um, and you know, we'll continue to do it. Um, and and it, it, we, we can only bring the horse to water, we can't make the whole street water. So, we'll bring this information to the players, we'll constantly bring the information to the players. And you know, hopefully, at one point, the seed will, will fall. But you're right, it is have you know, I've been there. You know, you, you don't see yourself uh, leaving the game, you think that you're kind of invincible. Um, but we know that you know, football, football, the average football uh, career is only seven years. So if you think about that um, you know that's why we do what we do in regards to the education department and talking constantly about the transition and constantly about retraining.
1: Michael when you were um, at Li when you were um, having the, the rehab and what have you on your on your injury did you cross
2: over with Paul Lake at all? No no I think Paul came after me I think I believe I mean me and Paul speak now because Paul was for the Premier League now like I you know, so we have a mm. conversation. All the time, but no, at, at that time when I was there, I didn't come into contact. I say he was there, it was um, uh, what's the lad it used to be um, uh, Sunderland Ball, can't remember his first name. Uspir, oh, captain, Al, he used to be captain of Sunderland, um, center half, uh, something Ball, can't remember his name. Alan, um, Ian, Alan Ball, and, no, I don't think it was Alan Ball, it was I can't remember his name, I can see his face as well. I think <laughs> he's still working at it. So basically, he was a high profile player at the time at Sunderland, flying high really serious knee injury, leg injury. Uh, and and I bonded with him, really, really bonded with him. Uh, and, I, and I think he was a key because he was an older player as well. Uh, uh, I think that was a massive key for me that I was able to talk with him constantly because we were doing because we were the same injury, we were doing the same exercises, same rehab, you know, I was with him most of the time. So uh, he was a massive, massive influence on me and support for me during those times.
1: Uh, Kevin Ball it is, I've just Googled oh, yeah. it. That's Kevin, it. Kevin yeah. Ball, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: absolute legend and fantastic for me during that dark period
1: i've just uh, i've just recently a few weeks back finished reading paul lake's book um and obviously all the all the kind of difficulty that he adds over it is is sort of reoccurring the injuries and it's it's really um it's one of those things where it it doesn't massively surprise you because you've heard whispers of those type of stories but to hear it in like to see the full-blown extent of it is quite shocking what he what he kind of went through and what is probably the same experience as you say for lots of different players in that position yeah, yeah. um the pandemic has obviously brought brought with it a lot of challenges and i'd imagine for for you in your role those challenges are just amplified 10 times what have you found to be sort of the biggest problems that footballers are coming to you with during the pandemic one of the biggest things that are
2: concerning them I think uncertainty was the massive, massive thing. I think the the uncertainty from the lower division players, Division 1 and Division 2 players was uncertainty uh, because when we first went into lockdown, we wasn't sure what was happening. Was the Division 1, 2 games going to be cancelled? Were they going to be be played? How they are going to be played? Um, You had the issues around players who were out of contract in in the summer uh, and their concerns about are they going to get a new contract? You had concerns about the players wanting fans to be, Come back into the stadiums because obviously that generates uh, funds that will obviously provide them with their, with, with their future contracts. So the, the 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 key for me was that the, 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 they didn't have any idea of what was going on. Basically, the uncertainty. Mm. Uh, the other thing that came up for me was um, was the uh, a lot of players got caught up in the panic buying. So a lot of players were in, you know, in the lower divisions. You know, have to kind of budget their, their finances. Got caught up in a. The, the panic buying and, and spent money that they didn't really have uh, and, and left them in kind of, you know, financial difficulties in regards to that. Uh, and, and the other ones were the ones that were uh, former members that were kind of self-employed coaches in schools and taxi drivers and stuff like that. You know, obviously they couldn't work. Um, so these were the main issues that really arose from the initial impact of the pandemic. Moving on, um, for me, it's the, what was also coming up and still coming up now is, is, is the fact that The structure, you know, it was a key. It was, it was, we're at home. We're not seeing players. We're not training together. We're missing that outdoor uh, environment. Um, A lot of players have said to me that, you know, because football's kind of taken over their life, their families kind of come in second place, as it were. Uh, But now the roles are reversed now, you know, they're they're more with their families and they're they're not used to it. They're not used to being at home, you know, as much as they are. So that was difficult in in relationships as well. So they were the kind of main issues that arose. And then the latter part of the, the, the pandemic was with the gambling the gambling began to, to rise, the gambling began to become an, an issue uh, because you've got so much time in your hands and nothing to do. Um, the the the, the earlier parts were, were fine because there was no sport. There was no sport on, so you couldn't gamble on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, when the sport started to come back in the latter part, the, the, the lockdown, then there were things to gamble on and, and that became an issue. So they were the main issues that kind of arose from the, the pandemic.
1: We've heard quite a lot during the pandemic about... Um... Uh, the pfa and other other sort of bodies were and sort of releasing figures about how many footballers were were maybe presenting with uh depression or anxiety symptoms or whatever it might be and i think the kind of the general air around it was one of kind of negativity and we had a conversation on one of our episodes about maybe looking at it slightly differently and maybe looking at it as a positive thing in a way the fact that maybe if as you say if this had happened 10 years ago would that many footballers be willing to come forward and talk about the fact that they are having issues with depression and anxiety during this time?
2: I think, no, they wouldn't, wouldn't have nowhere to go. They'd they would they'd probably be feeling the same way, but wouldn't have nowhere to go to talk to anyone about it. And again, back then, again, it was a closed shop. You know, you never talked about men health, You never talked about emotional stuff. You just didn't do it. Uh, in football in particular, as men, you, didn't, you wouldn't do it. And from a cultural aspect as well, you know, from a, a Caribbean family, even more so from my standpoint, because, you know, we have this thing that what, what we say in our house stays in the house. So you just don't talk so from that standpoint yeah, you know you know we look at it it has been a benefit because we have got the structures in place and support in place that can support the players that are, are coming forward you know i think for me uh, dan i think what was important was that when the lockdown first started i was i was it was nice and sunny it was warm outside and i just felt to myself that you know this will be fine it'll be like a little honeymoon period the, the players at home mm. got a bit of time with their families suns out it's, it's all great but I just knew maybe four or five weeks down the line, they're going to start to wonder, itchy feet. What's happening? What's going to go on? What's happening? And then the emotional stuff will start kicking in. And so really, what I what I did was I, I put out a questionnaire um, to ask the players, you know, how they were feeling. You know, my 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 thesis, at, my doctorate thesis, was about the lived experience of mental health in professional footballers, and so it came an ideal opportunity to get some more data on that. And so what I did was send out a, a, a survey to the players, just asking them about, you know, how they're finding lockdown, what are they missing, um, how they are, and I had to be blunt and say, are you having any kind of suicide or or high risk feelings, you know, suicide self harming I had to put that question in there because you have to ask it. Mm. And you know, from that questionnaire, we received, I think we received about. 400 plus or 300, and 300, I think the latter part, 300. Um, but out of that 57, were high risk. So, you know, you're looking at that, you're thinking, wow. Um, and so, because we have the structures in place to support them, we can go back to them and say, right, well, you received this. Um, can we have a contact details so we can contact you, make a phone call, find out what support we can offer you? And we were able to do that. We were able to offer support to all those high-risk players, that, members that were struggling, and they got the relevant support they needed. So... You're right. It, you know, it it's, can be looked at negatively, but I think, as you said, 10, ten years ago we had no structures in place. On ten years on, we've got very, very good structures in place, but we still got a little bit of work to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a it's about acknowledging that the, the improvements that have been made. So it kind of demonstrates what's possible, but not like resting on your laurels and thinking that the things are sorted. As you say, the 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 PFA has got a, a, a national network of counsellors for footballers. Which are kind of across the country, so they're, they're geographically placed for for people to to access. So for a for a player to practically access that support and practically access a counsellor, what kind of steps do they go through, you know, on 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 a logistical basis in order to be able to access that support?
2: So the network of counsellors was something I, I implemented when I became so drowned in the phone calls from players wanting support. You know, um, I was all around the country just seeing players often counselling up and down the country, train, driving, and, and it was becoming uh, emotionally draining. And so, you know, I, I I decided that it was important to kind of implement a kind of network of therapists. We started with 28, um, spoke to the late Peter Kay at Sporting Chance, uh, and they used, um, uh, used counsellors as a kind of uh, 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 at the end of the residential it was a kind of way of easing these individuals back into the community uh, and, and often counselling was a way of doing that so what we decided to do was uh, you know used utilize those 28 counsellors and just regionalize them and so the idea was that you know I wanted to make sure that I had the counsellors in place first before raising awareness because what you don't want to do is raise awareness and then you haven't got the relevant support in place to provide that support so we did that and and then what was what was helped us was the Clark Collard documentary about his own journey uh, and then we were kind of inundated with people wanting to offer our therapists wanting to offer their services so the kind of network grew very very quickly um, today we have 200 plus therapists uh, and the idea behind it for me you know it is a service that is provided by the PFA but is manned by sporting chance on our behalf um, they triage the calls and then they kind of help get a really relevant therapist for the players um, the idea behind it was that we wanted to make the players aware that there are very different vehicles you can go about getting the support. You can go to your club, and they could give you the relevant information. You could go on social media. Uh, you can look in the magazine. You can ring the PFA directly. You know, we wanted to make sure all the different mediums of uh, reaching the support were there for players. Some players are happy to talk face to face. Some players like to do WhatsApp or, or social media. Some players want to, you know, you know, uh, uh, make a telephone call. So we wanted to make it as possible for players to do that. So that's what we did. So what they did is when they give a phone call, they they phone up. Um, usually we get a parent fund up on behalf of their son or daughter uh, or, or we get a wife fund uh, up or a boyfriend fund up on behalf of their partners or, or husband or wife uh, saying my, my, my husband or my, my, my wife is, is emotionally not 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 not, not themselves uh, and we say right okay fine but we need to speak to the individual you know we need to speak to individuals individual so the individual is buying into the process mm-hmm. um, again it goes back to that big house where everything's done for you we yeah. we're we're, we're we're moving ourselves away from that. So it's, 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 it's you kind of have to kind of seek the support from us. We're here for you. Now it doesn't work for everyone, don't get me wrong. Uh, some players will need us to contact them, but she's fine. Uh, but you make the phone call, you know, an assessment is done over the phone with your presenting issues, whatever that might be. Again, uh, Dan, presenting issues might be depression or anxiety, but we have to remember you don't wake up being depressed. You don't wake up being anxious. You don't wake up being stressed there is a root issue that is causing depression, anxiety and stress. And the key element for me is that getting to the root issue for me will be able to then subside the depression, anxiety and stress. So the idea for me when I was doing the the therapeutic stuff with the players is that trying to get to the root issue, talking that through, working that through and that alleviates the stress, depression, anxiety and the same with gambling. And so that was the kind of model we used and and, and the players come forward, they get an assessment, we get their home address, their full name, home address, PFA number, and then we look on the on our geographically where they where they, where they're positioned, and we pair them with a therapist that is in line with their presenting issues, and that's the way how we do it.
1: One and, thing that oh, sorry, Michael, go on. Man.
2: And, and and they get twelve free counselling sessions from us, and they can use that how and when they want to use that once a week, twice a week, once a month, it's up to them. And if some players require further sessions, you know, we look at that and we offer further sessions to them. So it's a, it's a great service for them to, to access.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that's, that's come up quite a few times in the interviews is players perhaps feeling uncomfortable talking to their clubs because they think it might affect their career or, you know, their chances of getting in the team or whatever it might be. Um, uh, Chris Ullumo, who who, who, who's, um, who passed your number on to us after we did an interview with him, that was exactly what he said, that he yeah. was had a little bit of a worry that, you know, the manager might think, oh, you know, the big fella's not feeling OK. Yeah. I, am yeah. I going to play him this Saturday? And Do you you feel as though maybe there are more players who maybe come directly to you because it means that they don't have to go through the club and it won't have, you know, because obviously your service will be confidential so that the the club aren't going to know. And where do you find, do you ever feel as though there's any point where you may have to interact with with the club as their employer that, you know, that that there may be a, a safety concern or a wellbeing concern?
2: Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I think, I think you're, you know, for the first instance, you're right. Um, players even now are still find it difficult going to their clubs and talking about these particular issues because of, as you just said, and as Chris has said, uh, you know, you know what the club may be thinking a particular way about that particular individual. Uh, and more often than not, maybe negatively, um, and the impact it's going to have on on on, on them performing. Um, but as I said before, uh, Chris is a prime example that you know sought out support um, and and you know really dive into the support and, you know, in a better place now. Um, but you're, you're right, in regards to the clubs, there is this concern that, you know, if the clubs do find out or, 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 or are aware of it, it could jeopardise them. Now, if you think about, um, I always say, that if you think about a young lad who's been at a club for, he's been at the club since he's eight, um, he's 16 now, he's signed his scholarship, he's trying to, two years to prove himself to get a professional contract, uh, we know at the age of sixteen these young men be coming these boys become young men. you know there are three elements going in there for me which is which are key. you know one is that their, their education, they're still trying to get their start, education and qualifications and exams are going on. They're trying to get a, a, a contract to at 16 uh, and they' you know they're, they're, their their home ones are changing as well. so you've got a free double whammys going on in a young person at 16. Um, so if you've got this going on and you're trying to you know in trying to work trying to get your professional contract at 18, Let's say for argument's sake, your girlfriend leaves you um, uh, for whatever reason at 17, and, and you're actually devastated because you're madly in love at that age. What that looks like, um, you know, <laughs> that player is going to be in a, in a, in a space, headspace that is not in the right frame of mind. Is he going to tell his manager that you know, gaffer, I'm not, my head's not in the right space today because my girlfriend's left me. I don't. think he will? Because he's been working so hard over these 10 years to get to this space here. He's got one year to work to get his professional contract. He's probably not. I mean, I'm not making this up. I've had these stories. So these are stories that I've experienced from players. They're not going to say anything. But when you offer a player a service away from the football club, away from their family, which is private and confidential, no one knows about it. They are accessing it. Now, in regards to safeguarding, you know, if the player's 18 or above, then they're an adult. So, you know, they, they do what they have to do. If it's younger, then we have a duty of care that we have to show, show, showcase with the club uh, around that because it's a safeguarding issue. So, yeah, they're the kind of the two different kind of stuff that's going on that, you know, they're the battles that players have got going on. We're, we're hoping that, you know, as time goes on, this will decrease and players will feel more comfortable talking to clubs, you know, but at the moment we've still got this battle going on. And it's, and yeah. it's, a, win, it's a win-win for the PFA, so, you know, it's, it's all good.
1: Yeah, exactly. I suppose it, you know, if people are using, you know, footballers are using your services, then it demonstrates that there's a requirement for them. But if if it encourages them in the long run to be able to go through their clubs yeah, and it changes definitely. the whole attitude, then it's, it's good all around, isn't it, for everybody?
2: Yeah, dad and listen, when I do the workshops at, at the clubs, I always say in the workshops, we want you to go to your club. We we want you to go to your club first and, and, and speak to your club about your issue. You know, you should be able to go to your club and speak to your club about your issue, but if you can't this is where we are to support our members as a union to look after you. And this is our number. And I, and I said at in all the workshops, and you have staff in the, in the workshops listening, and, and they will tell the same thing to you. Always say go to your club first if you can, or oh, you feel comfortable. If not, we're here for you. Yeah. So it shows you that, you know, they're coming to us. So there is this little uncomfortability around going to their club.
1: And I suppose that sort of, that kind of moves us on to the, to the next question that I've got for you, Michael, which is around the sort of, Tragic events around Jeremy Wisdom from, from last October, who was, of course, the the, the former Manchester City youth player who, who sadly took his own life. I think he was only 17, 18. And when a sort of incident like that takes place, the same as with Gary Speed, I mean, it, possibly to an even greater extent because of his age, but it, it, it obviously sends big shockwaves, doesn't it, through through the kinds of football in Wales that that, that that type of thing can happen. From your point of view, and, and I suppose. I don't know if it's necessarily the PFA's responsibility or if it's the FA's responsibility or whose responsibility it is. Is there any processes within the game that would then maybe say, okay, do we need to investigate this? Is there any systems that need to be put in place that may be able to avoid this from happening in the future? And, and do, uh, do you know of any frameworks like that like, that are kind of built in on the back of this, this type of
2: thing? Um, I, I would say that Jerry Winston this, this was, was very tragic. Um, you know, a young man. I think, there's, I think what we've got to be mindful of, Dan, is that, you know, people are pointing to think that at football, that is football's fault. Um, and there are stuff in the background that has been going on that the public aren't privy to. So it's, it's not mainly just a football issue. There are other things going on in there. Um, you know, and unfortunately for, for, for Jeremy, he wasn't a PFA member. Um, so, you know, the access to our support wasn't there. Um, I do know that Man City is one of those clubs that have a, a lot of player care. As provisions at the club um, and this is one of those incidents that you know unfortunately uh, has happened and we, we you know we don't want these incidents we want the players to be able to come and speak and talk about what, what what's going on i think since then um there are talks around you know implementing frameworks of support for the younger 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 uh, uh, younger players we as an organization uh, we've got a youth advisory group which is run by my colleague george bowyer and, and george basically works with the 9 to 16s but he's just sort of advice and guidance around the mental, emotional support available to the players when they become PFA members. So, you know, unfortunately there isn't, we're, we're not in that space to offer that, that support, uh, but we're making them aware that they may, they, they'll be future PFA members, their parents are, are aware of the support that's available to them. So they're aware of that when they progress through the, 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 the um, through the through the, through the football uh, mindful that they've got to go through. Now, for me, uh, the duty of care. Does it? Who's it come with? Who's it fall with? This is this is the big question. Who's the duty of care fall with? Does it fall with the club? If the players left the club, does the club does the it club it, does the club need to provide that support? No, he's left the club. You know, I, you know. I said this other day when I was interviewed. If you, if you were working in Zara, say for instance, and you left Zara, and said we, we no longer want you to work for us. Do you expect Zara to offer a, a, a care plan for that individual? No. Um, so, you know, but people feel that football should. And I understand that, you know, people think that there's loads of money in football and I get that. But I believe there should be some sort of framework in place that's, that supports these individuals when they are, when they do leave the game. What that looks like, I don't know, Dan is answered that question. Um, it's a massive area. And we've seen the interviews on the other day on Sky Sports uh, around the lads who talked about the, the carelessness in the football, the lad at Fulham, the lad at Swanson, and then at Bristol City talking about that. So we're, So, again, this conversation has been had just like the mental health conversation has been had, you know, and we'd like to think in you know, a couple of years, there will be some framework of support that will be supporting these individuals when they do leave the game.
1: I suppose with, with, with an instance like, um, Jeremy Liston, just you know, it, obviously it was, it was tragic and, and, and really sad, but it, it, it's, They're not. It's not like a. It doesn't feel like a regular occurrence. So I guess, in a way, it. 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 it, I suppose as tragic as it was, it maybe demonstrates that that football is starting to get things right and is starting to put things in place that mean that those things are just horrible anomalies. Really, that ultimately you can't stop everything. You. It's these things are always going to happen. You know, to a lesser or greater extent, aren't they? Mm. Um. You've talked quite a bit, Michael, about. A lot of what you do is kind of proactive in, in yes. kind of trying to get ahead of things and get things in place for people when they re- meet that sort of reach those points when they need it. Yeah. One of the things that obviously that you'll obviously have to, I would imagine, have to battle with will be the way that there are societal changes and, and, and changes in the game that will provide different challenges for mental health, the pandemic being one of them. One of the big ones that we've seen, obviously, over the last few years and particularly since the the, the pandemic has has started and there's been no fans in stadium is maybe that level of abuse or targeted abuse has moved online onto social media more than maybe when you were playing it was on the stands and you know as bad as that is it's it's somebody shouting at you for an hour and a half and then you can go home and you don't have to listen to them anymore The, the the sort of stuff that's presented online now provides a different challenge how do you kind of as an organization keep on top of that type of things it must be incredibly difficult because it, it changes
2: all the time doesn't it it changes all the time and I can only speak from a kind of world-being p- perspective in, in regards to this I know that we are qualities and diversity team uh, are, are constantly in talks with Facebook and Instagram and and Twitter regarding this and this is this is a constant battle that even government are involved with now um, and it, and as I said for me personally you know you play a game on a Saturday good bad or indifferent, you can go home, you don't see anything until Monday. Um, unfortunately for these players, they're getting it from fans and then they get it on their social media platforms as well. It's, it's, it's constant, it's constant barrage. And you can't tell me that with this constant barrage. I mean, for me, I spoke to an individual the other day and he was saying, he's, you know, he's got 20,000 followers um, and, you know, he'll play a game and you you know, get 19,999 likes, well done, well played. He'll get one negative one and it will just ruin his weekend. Do you know what I mean? So if you look at it that way uh, and have an understanding how emotionally that impacts that individual, think about how the impact will be from the boys that are getting racial abuse constantly, constantly being racially abused and how emotion that has an impact on them. From my standpoint, you know, we're, we're, we're looking now to, to, to provide... Uh, emotional support for those players who receive online abuse. We're looking to implement a, a, a standalone service that supports the players with online abuse. We're having talks in, well, this month. That's why I'm leaving this meeting now to go into this next meeting. It's about, you know, we have fast forwarded now. We're pushing it forward about what guidelines will look like from a Premier League perspective and what guidelines will look like from an EFL perspective. And, and in that, in that guidelines the support the PFA are going to be offering uh, with, with those online abuse. So again, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, uh, as I said I'm not the expert in this area so I wouldn't even want to go any further into it about you know what the platforms and social media platforms are actually doing um, but from a well-being perspective you know I'm you know, again trying to be proactive again trying to implement emotional support again making the players aware that this is available to them so they haven't got suffering silence so you know again I'm trying to just push this agenda forward.
1: Yeah absolutely I suppose it's one of those things where it it kind of for a long time it's kind of just been accepted that You are going to receive a certain level of abuse online and then i think all of a sudden people have just started to realize or started to think maybe why do i have to put up with that like it's just not necessary like i'm once it starts to go into the realms of discriminatory abuse so be it you know racial abuse or homophobic abuse or whatever it might be you just think this is just this is just unmanageable over a long period of time it's just it's just completely unnecessary um there was a story that, that that we read in the Guardian, which was written by Paul McInnes, which was about the um, the sports management degree that, the, that is subsidised by the PFA, and after Brexit, that the, the prices got about an eight and a half thousand pounds price increase. What sort of impact do you see, sort of, the, maybe the the removal of subsidies for that course and potentially other other sort of things that you're able to offer? The, the sort of impact Brexit and and maybe the pandemic
2: is going to have long term on what you can offer um I, I, it's going to have an impact it's going to have an impact unfortunately um and it's going to have an impact not only for the the, the individuals that are you know looking to educate themselves uh it's going to have an impact the, the, the you know the generation come coming through as well um unfortunately um and we've we just have to find a way around it i'm not sure what that looks i know i know that again the CEO is in talks with with the relevant stakeholders regarding this and, and seeing how we can. Get around it if we can, but I think it's going it to have an impact. I think just like Brexit to have impact, the pandemic is going to have impact as well. I don't think people are talking about what the impact of the pandemic is going to have in the next year or, or so because you know that's, there's going to be a fallout from that. I, I feel there's going to be a fallout from that, um, and, and how we're going to manage that, support that. Again, from an emotional standpoint, you know, we, we need to look at that. But yeah, I, I think the Brexit thing and the, and the cost and the, and the education stuff is going to have a massive, massive impact on our members. Um, And and, and again, my answer to the question, I don't know, Dan, is the answer to that. I'll just just sit tight and see what that looks like. But I do know there are conversations already been had around trying to reverse or trying to find a way around this so we can support our members and give them the relevant quality courses that are are, are fundable uh, for them. Yeah, of
1: course. That's it. I suppose it's it's nobody really knows anything in a lot of ways at the moment. Do they? It's all up in the air, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, that's the concern. That's the, that's, that, that's the worry. It's up in the air. No one knows what's what. You know. So one minute it's Brexit, next minute it's pandemic. You know, it's it's back and forth. So you know, you're trying to keep your eye on one thing, and then another thing comes up. So, so yeah, it's difficult, mate. It's difficult.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And over the, the last few years, as we've kind of touched upon, football seems to be engaging a lot more with with mental health, both in a both in a, in the work that you're doing, kind of behind the scenes, and also kind of front facing as well. So initiatives like uh, the Heads Up campaign, Minds, and the, the EFL's relationship. Do you think that there's a genuine desire in 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 football to improve the attitudes and outcomes of players when it comes to their mental health, or is there any concern at all that maybe? At the moment, it's a, you know, an air quotes, a fashionable subject, if you see what I mean. I mean, you've worked in your role for like 10 years now, so you must have seen trends come and go and and people be interested and they're not interested. It feels now maybe there's a little bit more of a sea change than there has been before. It feels a bit more long term. Is that is that kind of reflected or have you got any concerns that maybe trying to keep that momentum going, I suppose.
2: No, I think personally, you know, when you've got Prince William involved with the Heads Up campaign and, you know, he talks about his own emotional issues with his mother passing away and and stuff like that, you've got someone who generally understands the mental health agenda. And so when you've got someone who understands it you know they're, they're bringing their lived experience to this particular agenda um you know I've I, I sit on the stakeholders meetings in them heads up meetings and with other stakeholders in football and there is a there is a, a, a collaborative uh working towards the betterment of mental health um, and having the Prince William on there is just push that agenda uh further up up up, up, the, up the list if you want to use it use use that term you know you know when you see him sitting there with Gareth Southgate. Terry Henry and, and, and those individuals talking about their experiences. That's the power that, that, that the Prince William brings and, and, and that's massive for mental health and it's massive uh, to get talking about. And you think about fans being in the stadium and and fans going to games and you know, we've got this, you know, a montage on, on, on the screen and talking about mental health and players talking about mental health, you know, we know that, you know, the biggest issue is suicide between twenty five and fifty. And so, you know, we don't have fans that are going to games are of that kind of age group. So I think the message that we're trying to get out there is important that, you know, we need these individuals to, to talk. I think utilising the Prince Williams and utilising the players to showcase that is massive. And I think we've, we've seen a large number of people take uptake on that regarding seeking support. My only concern, Dan, and this is my only concern, is that we know the NHS is stretched already. Um, and so if you've got an individual that's been to a football match, seen the these interviews and seen the players talking about it and his montage going around the big screens at Wembley and at games and you decide that, you know what, you know, I'm going to step forward now and, and seek help for my, my own mental health because I've been kind of, putting it in the back of my mind and just leaving it there. And then they make that step to go and get support. And then you go to your doctor and the doctor says, you know, there's a three month waiting list Uh. or there's a six month wait list. You know, that's my concern um, that, you know, that that person made that step and been brave to do it, but can't access support. Um, uh, that's why in the the professional game we're, we're, we're lucky that, you know, when players want to seek support, we have the relevant support that they can access within 24 hours, 40 hours at the latest. So that was my only concern would have would have been that the, the people coming forward and seeking support and whether they are able to get the relevant support thereafter just because of the NHS being stretched and the demands on them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And That's such a salient point because I think the more and more that people are comfortable, you know, talking about it and maybe going to their GP or, you know, doing whatever they might need to do to access services, the more stressed those services then become, don't they? And it's, it's you know, you don't want anyone to feel put off. Because as you say, uh, you know, the, I, I've been there myself. You go to your doctor and you say, someone will call you in 12 weeks and you're just a bit like, yeah.
2: what was the, completely,
1: the yeah, it's completely yeah. pointless. Yeah. And it yeah. takes such an emotional toll to even make that first step to go and exactly. see somebody and exactly. to just be told, It'll, someone will call you in three months you yeah. can see why people feel like oh no one gives a shit like what was the and, point point and in that, that?
2: And, and that is the and that is the issue and, I, and i'm not knocking it i just said it's, it's it's a fantastic campaign you know i've been part of it from the very beginning uh the mentally healthy the declaration that was signed we signed it um although the mentally healthy declaration was for clubs um i thought that you know from a from a pfa standpoint we are a club we're a union um what does a mentally healthy union look like. And so what I decided to do was then go out and get training for all our staff at the PFA. So all our staff are mentally healthy, uh, mental health trained from the CEO right the way down. Um, And that just showcases that, you know, we recognise the importance of not only supporting our members around their mental health issues, but also supporting our staff as well because our staff are working with these members and and clubs and organisations I'm hoping we'll see what we've done and recognise the importance of looking after your staff as well, because they're the front face, and they're the ones that are doing the work and they're the ones that not many people are actually talking about their own emotional well-being. So for me, it was a big thing to get all our staff supported and trained up and making them aware that if they've got their own emotional issues, <coughs> they may not be comfortable coming to the PFA. But we've offered them a pathway of support that they can go to, uh, to access support outside of us. So that was the key for me, mate. So, you know, it was important that we did that for our staff uh, because we can't keep beating the drum about the work we're doing for our members, but not not doing it for our staff. So that was important for me. Yeah,
1: very true. It seems like from talking to you, Michael, and a lot of other conversations we've had with other people who are doing. So we had um, Robbie Simpson on, who's who runs... Um, an organization called LAPS, uh, life after professional sports mm-hmm. um, which i'd imagine you've probably had some some involvement with at some yeah. point and we also yeah. spoke to um scott davis who used to play for reading yeah. um that and again, he does yeah, yeah. yeah and, right. and and it it, it feels like uh, when we came to start doing this podcast which is just over 12 months ago i think our perception was was that we maybe meet an environment in football that maybe is doesn't understand that much about it or it is 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 it's it's not doing that much to try and improve the situation but it feels like and and this may just be because we get to talk to people like you we were doing some amazing work but it feels like football is really trying like really trying as an industry to be better at at the way that it engages with it's it's the mental health of the people that are involved and and there are always going to be obviously challenges with that and there's not it's not something that's it's a journey that it's at its end at the moment, but it feels like it, there is a genuine want to improve the situation. And I suppose, even just as a starting point, that's a that's a positive thing for everybody involved, isn't it?
2: Well, I think so. I think for me, as I said, you know, my experiences, I'm bringing my own lived experiences into this into this in this in work that I do, you know, so I'm passionate about it and I hope you can kind of hear that in my voice, you know, because I, as I said, there are, we, we've got 3,000, to 3,500 professional players each year, um, 1,500 scholars, and then you've got the 200 wso one Super League women's players as well. So we've got a large number of players each season. And so, you know, we need to make them aware that, you know, there is the support available to them. You know, it's it's a, it's a private and confidential uh, service. It's a robust service that we've put in place. Uh, it meets all the criteria required. Um, and it's there for them to utilise. And we need to get the message out there for them to come and access it, which they are. The other key thing for me, uh, Dan, is that, you know, one cat doesn't fit all. We're aware that, you know, you can't offer a service to everybody. One cap doesn't fit all. And so we need to look at what other sort of uh, services we can offer. And again, that's why we're asking the players uh, their advice. When we deliver the workshops online, we ask the players to do a survey, and they feedback on that survey what they feel should be implemented and what that looks like. We, we, we're collating that data now, and we will look to implement the new new changes in a new season for next season. So we're constantly trying to uh, evolve. We're not standing still. We have to be at the cutting edge um, because, as you said, it's society is constantly changing, and we need to make sure we're, we're there with it when it changes, and you know, not be left behind. So for me, it's 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 it's, it's constant. We're doing great. We can do even more. Stuff uh, and that's what I'm pushing for, and for the stakeholders to to fully buy into it, and to the clubs to, as a duty of care, to buy into it as well. So we're all singing from the same hymn sheet, and what the best for, what is the players' emotional wellbeing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to wrap up, then Michael, you did the you mentioned there about fans being back in stadiums and. Obviously, recently, you know, we've had the news that potentially before the end of the season, we may see fans back in in stadiums. How do you think the players are going to handle that? Because it, it, it was a big change for them to get used to not having fans there. And then with it often it is these things, it will almost feel like overnight there'll be 40,000 people back in a stadium again. And they're going to have to deal with that change of dynamic, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, you know, it, different players will do it different ways. Me personally, if I was playing, I'd be looking forward to it, looking forward to the buzz and to the band and to the, the songs being sung and, you know, that that, that vibe that, that the fans bring, I'd be looking forward to it. Uh, and I'm sure a number of players will be looking forward to it as well because, you know, I'm watching the games on TV and it's great that it's, the, the games are on, but, you know, you're watching them, you think sometimes it's a pre-season friendly like, you know what I mean? Because there's no, no no atmosphere and it's a difficult one. So for me personally, you know, I'd be I'd, I'd be looking forward to the fans being what coming back and, and bringing that you know that 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 vibe that they bring to the games, you know, that 12th man, if you want to call it that, that that's that generates that great, great emotional feeling. So, yeah, from my standpoint, you know, I'll be looking forward to it.
1: Who's your um, who do you support, Michael? Who's your team? Um,
2: okay, so I've got some main United, <laughs> yeah. May United in the team, uh, but Charlton's me kind of the team,
1: yeah. So it's just uh, you be, you be. Uh, do you know what? I knew you were going to say Man United. As soon as you paused, I thought he's going to say Man United. Yeah,
2: no, no, do you know what? I'll give you the story. The story was I watched the I think it was a 78 Cup final, I'm not sure, or, or Arsenal, Man United, where Alan, Alan Sunderland scored in the last minute when he dived in and slid it in. Uh, and I, and I really felt bad for Gary Bailey, he was in goal. Uh, and, and, and that's why I supported Man United. I just started to support Man United because I felt bad for Gary Bailey. So that was it. And then obviously, Martin Buckham was captain of the Man United team back then. And then I joined the PFA, and I don't get starstruck by anybody. I don't. No, no one's starstruck to me. And when I walked into the PFA, and saw Martin in there, and I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> you know what I mean? And we've been great. We've been great friends and colleagues since then. Like, you know, many of those left the organisation, but but yeah, it was Man United then. But I think Chart was in my heart because it was a club that gave me my first start professional game. I was there for seven years, uh, five years of first stint, two years of second stint. Um, it's local to where I live. You know, I go and watch games when I can. Uh, the, the, there's a family vibe there, family vibe that was there when I was there. They're trying to bring that back. The you are coming back, and the structures going, to take it's looking good. The new, the new uh, CEO's taking over. So, so the yeah, chant in my, is in my kind of in my blood, really. So they're the two clubs. <laughs>
1: Lads, so we've obviously over the past sort of 12 months or so spoken to a number of footballers, kind of former footballers, current footballers, and also players who kind of played in academies but maybe didn't make it to a professional level for one way or another. And we've heard sort of varying stories about the support that people have had in place from the PFA with regards to mental health provision. And obviously our theme for today's episode is ensuring that mental health support is available for footballers. And that's obviously the remit of Michael's role. So it was useful for us to get it from the horse's mouth, what is it available for footballers and how does that actually work? Because it can be quite confusing when you get it from the people who are external sometimes, because maybe if they haven't engaged with it too much, they might not know the ins and outs of it. Ryan, in terms of, I mean, you were on the, the interview with us. What were your kind of thoughts in terms of what Michael's role is and, and how kind of useful it is for footballers on a, on a, probably on a daily basis is the easiest way to think about it.
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's useful because, as we've touched on, you don't always want to go straight to your employer or your manager, your chairman. You might not have somebody who, who takes care of welfare at your club. And even if you do, as we've touched on with um, with Chris, you, you're reluctant to do so because mm-hmm. naturally you think you might come back on yourself. So to have a separate entity that's there to provide that, I think is, is important. We've obviously had a lot of stories on here that say, or PFA weren't there for me, or they didn't do enough, and it wouldn't really be just of us to just keep releasing episodes that say that without actually letting the PFA or representative talk about what is available, and Michael does say at some point you can lead a horse to water, but they have got a drink when they're there, and I think that's what today, well, this episode hopefully will highlight to, to show what is available. That word accessibility will come up a lot, Um, but also the players themselves have to engage with what's available as well Um, I think the PFA are also trying the hardest to collect as much data as they go, surveys that they do in the men and the women's game, I think it's important that players engage with stuff like that as well and be as truthful as they can because a lot of the guidance and a lot of the booklets that they have are shaped by feedback so I think it's important for players who are suffering and who aren't suffering to to be engaged with the PFA, be engaging with Michael, talk about their experiences And, and it is getting better and I think it's clear to see that Michael cares, uh, I think the PFA care a lot more, well, maybe not a lot more than they used to, but they're a lot more aware of it, Yeah. and I think the fact that they do care means it is trending in the right direction, which is positive, Um. so all in all, I think it was good to see what, what they are doing, like all things related to mental health, resource will always be an issue to a degree, there's always more people you could have involved or more money being spent on it, but I think... A lot of the players are realising now that actually if I'm if I'm struggling I can hold my hand up.
1: Yeah. I think that I think that, that's a really important element of it, Ryan. And I think as we've discussed throughout all of these episodes, it's about learning, isn't it, as much as anything else? You mm. know, there's no point in just chucking money after something and thinking, Oh, let's just put loads and loads of people in there and that'll that'll fix it. Because I think with mental health as much as anything else, there's a lot of nuance to the language that you use, a lot of nuance to the culture that you create in terms of encouraging footballers to be more open and come forward and use those resources that are available. So I think that's a really important element of it as well. And one thing I wanted to ask you in terms of, for me, I thought it was interesting, listen, and you referenced it before we started, about the 200 or so yeah. therapists that are available to footballers. The thing that instantly came to my mind that I thought was interesting to kind of consider was You know, you and I have both gone through that process of going to your GP, being referred to mental health services, and then being sat on an enormous waiting list or, you know, waiting for a phone call back. And that process can take a long, long time. And it can be very disenchanting for people, disenfranchising for people to go. I mean, for me personally, I've kind of always been worried about going to the GP again to go and seek mental health services because... I know how long it's going to take and that point where they go, yeah, yeah, someone will phone you in 16 weeks. Makes me go, oh, fuck this. I can't be fucking bothered with it. And so almost avoiding that to a degree for me often just feels like at least I don't have to deal with that setback, if you know what I mean. And I know that's kind of a stupid way of looking at it because you need to get yourself on the list so you can get some help at some point. But there is an element for me where I'm just like, it's completely pointless putting someone on a 16-week list. So the thing that I thought with footballers was, and... This is a kind of twofold question and a very long-winded question as well, actually, the answer, but I will get there in the end. But what I wanted to ask you was, was that there was a feeling for me from the footballers that we've spoken to that there is an inconsistency with the support that they get from the PFA. Some of them have been very effusive about how useful it was. I mean, we mentioned Chris Ulluma before we started, but Chris was, you know, he was very, um, I think he was very happy with how the PFA dealt with him. He was very happy with the support that he got especially after his career but we've also had footballers who've said I, I didn't get any support or they didn't do enough for me or they could have done this and that so i think that's important to to, to to kind of highlight because i think with mental health service in this country there is an inconsistency depending on which area you're in or what situation you're in there is an inconsistency across the board but their ability to access those therapists that, that help is, is higher up the list than the general public isn't it just because of the, the the way that it's been set up do you think football kind of gets a little bit of a hard time for this type of thing the PFA maybe gets a bit of a hard time and then when you step back and analyse exactly what is available for footballers maybe it is better than they're given credit for to but, a degree
0: well I think he he summed it up pretty well with the the Jeremy Whitson uh, case and he went he wasn't a member it, we can't deal with people who aren't necessarily members. It was tragic. It was awful. But they're not there for completely everyone, and it's really difficult. If they don't know about these things and they don't know about stuff that's going on outside of football, you can't, you, you can't really do much, mm. I don't think, to be honest. It's there. They Everyone knows it's there. But if, like, like we said, if you don't want to go and do it, yeah. it's not going to work. You're not going to get anything from it. When you're saying, does football get a bad rep for it? Yeah, of course it does, because... You look at cricket, and it's probably because they, it's not been, not been advertised in the same way. So it's not been needed in the same way until mm. probably last year when all these footballers are home going. You want me to do Zoom training session? What? what what's this? I don't understand. Yeah, and that's just because their environment's completely changed. But like you look at cricket, and we've done an interview with the open up cricket guys, and they professional cricket association is unbelievable you've got a, a number of an ambassador you can contact throughout the day 24 hours a day when mm-hmm. you're struggling and that scene is like brilliant and we've said it before that is you know what football needs and that was before we you, you know you went and interviewed michael and you're going well, actually these these services are still there they're yeah. there they are there it might be in a different shape or form but they're definitely there so to criticize when Ryan am saying you know most people go well you've got all this money in the game you'll Be able to use it, well, yeah. You are but you've got to have the right people there to use the money properly, yeah. That's, and that, Mike, that's Michael. It, it? Michael seems to be the type of guy, and certainly the PFA at the moment seems to be going, We're using this better. It might not be flashy and and, and whatever, but we're using it better to have 200 therapists on board with you to be working with sport and chance it takes a lot of pride as well, I think, because. Yeah you've got to realise that it's not just them that need it. You need to go and get other help from people, from other organisations who've helped tonnes of footballers in the past. Yeah. So that, it's not narrow. So it's it's more open. So there's more, oh, we can use them, we can use these. We don't have to just create our own thing and just kind of dilute the whole, you know, so can you imagine if they, if they went, oh yeah, we'll just take it over. Sport and chance would be like, right, okay, well, you're kind of on our toes here. We can help you. So it, I, think it, I think it is better.
3: Just touching on what you said, Dan, about it almost being a, a privilege to compared to the general public. I, Move I
1: That think, box is what you want.
3: I think that's quite an important point, and it it's not one that should necessarily have negative connotations. We're not saying, oh, you're privileged, you're football, you get ac- better access to the general public. But the angle needs to be you're fortunate enough to have resource much more readily available than yeah. maybe the general public, so use it. Yeah, because there's so many people that would want access to it who can't. If you're genuinely struggling, use it. Because as you've touched on, it probably wouldn't be a 16 week waiting list to a footballer. No, and that's not as they, criticised. Well, up. that's sure just am Michael, sure Michael
1: say it, you can get an appointment on the day? Probably, and, it was and it's essentially it,
3: you know. like a private entity, and it? it's a it's like being private healthcare. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, so it's if you ha- if you are fortunate enough to be able to put dip into that resource, then. Michael's job is to make sure people do.
1: Yeah, and I think that comes back to the point that you were making before, Ryan, mm-hmm. about what's the culture that we create? You know, what's the environment? What's the attitude to these things that yeah. we create? And that's where football probably, you know, and, and, and to a degree, everyone can improve on that. It's how do we make that not feel like such a big step for people?
0: So there's a lot more players in football as well. So the problem will be rigour. Yeah, like of course. The, the, just naturally, there's a lot more players. As how many... It's- <laughs> there's thousands of players you play yeah. professionally semi-pro whatever I, compared to smaller games like cricket or even rugby for that matter it's it's a lot harder it's yeah. a lot easier but not easier but it's a lot more simple for them to go and yeah
1: it's a smaller pool isn't a, it yeah
0: to go and deal with the problem so,
1: and, 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 and the other thing with football as well which is probably different from some other sports and again this is with the caveat that I know sweet FA about any other sport but <laughs> The wealth disparity, so the social disparity between footballers and footballers is probably bigger than any other sport. Mm. So, you know, you you only have to look at, say, a footballer who plays for Tramier who's, you know, relatively speaking, very well paid compared to the average person. But what he earns in a year is what players who he could theoretically be playing against in the cup in, in like a day do you yeah. know what I mean so yeah, I think
0: and a seven year career on average as well you, exactly like,
1: yeah so what you have to think about is, is that the issues are so broad the issues you know the things that could be challenging to them are so different and they come from such different backgrounds now footballers as well because you know we used to consider footballers to be lads from working class backgrounds from council estates who played footy in the streets and then you know but it's not the same anymore it is a different system so the, the, the kind of difference and the, the breadth and, and you know all of these different things that go into it are just really important. And you were talking before, Ryan, about how the PFA makes that accessible to people. And, and, and you mentioned Gordon Taylor. And I think to an extent, they've had that Gordon Taylor isn't involved anymore, I think is an, is an important thing as well. He didn't have a particularly good reputation in football or, you know, external to football for supporters and stuff. And I mean, we did the interview with Nikki Truman, didn't we? And And she was pretty effusive about, How she felt as though the PFA had let her dad down, and had let you know lots of the other families down as well. You know the Jeff Astles Foundation and those people as well, that they felt as though the PFA had let them down. And I think to have that hanging over the PFA, to have that hanging over all of the people that are involved, is difficult to shake. Because if you're in an industry, an environment like that with the PFA, where you're saying we're here to help you, you know, come come and tell us when you've got a problem, we'll we'll help you out, and they're going. Well, you didn't have these hours. And look at the look at the state that they're, that yeah. they're in now, and you, that's because you didn't you didn't give a shit about them. So I think trying to shake that off is difficult for the PFA.
3: Yeah, I think part of the problem as well, and this is a separate topic, so I probably won't dive into it too much, is we mentioned Jeremy Whitson before. You've just mentioned um, Nicky Truman's dad. It's where does the support start and stop? Yeah. And that's a bit of a grey area. It, players in between clubs, youth players... Who may still become professional footballers, but at that point, maybe aren't paying into the PFA and a part yeah. of it. Players who've retired, who they may go, oh, we get a PFA pension, and you get well. Actually, he's all right for money. He needs this, yeah. Which it doesn't have a, a monetary worth to it. It's the support element yeah. in it. So, I think the PFA have got a job in mapping out the overlaps and the underlaps of where support starts and stops and who
1: yeah. who has access to it. Yeah, exactly. And it's the safeguarding that goes into when you when you the this is the point where our duty of care ends. Mm. How do you, as you say, bridge the gap between the next bit of it, yeah. and how do you prepare people to? Well, I mean, ideally, you'd have
0: our, not norm, say, normal society being able to deal with that as well. Well, but we don't. Well, we no, know that. We yeah. Well,
1: well, exactly, and that's why I was saying before: yeah. does football get a bad rep for these things? Because yeah. these are things that are happening in much worse. So, I mean, we all know if we if we're in a job and then we lose that job there isn't, like, safeguarding support for us and Absolutely, a bridging yeah. gap in yeah, back into yeah. the world. Well,
0: he says that, doesn't he? He said if you go, what is it, Zara uses? Yeah. He said if you get let go from Zara, they don't, they don't, really, care, not, they don't really care about you, but they're not expected to go yeah, and support you. and
1: nobody would. I, I do think, to a degree, it's not... A, I don't think it's quite the same comparison because no. of the, the nature of a football career mm. and the way that football sells itself to people. I do think it then is incumbent on them to have a higher level of responsibility. If you're going to ask people to basically pause yeah. huge parts of their life, went from like eight years old until they're like 40, I mean, then you are going to have to accept but that... But when the, we spoke to
0: Mike Kinsella, he was obviously he was doing the, the education bit of trauma, but he was very um, forthright about getting in touch with like semi-pro clubs and yes. getting his players clubs at least for a season to begin with. Yeah. And they were and always... Getting there. And he was always... You see him occasionally, he'll tweet and goes. You know, who, basically who wants these players yeah. who wants who needs players and mm. clubs around the country and certainly around here now need these players because the, <laughs> the grassroots is kind of dying
1: and and have to fill the gap as we said in that episode and we've said since Mike was really forthright about saying this is a good level to play at yeah. mm. most people don't get to play at this level and for players to, 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 to accept that this is the level that I'm at and I should embrace it enjoy it and be proud of myself for being here and not look at it as a failure. That's the type of example of things that clubs can do. And Mike said, didn't he? The, the way the here look at it is, is the okay. Well, we're going to give you an education. You can go through the school. If you become a footballer, that's a bonus. Okay. But that's not the ultimate aim of you being here. Yeah. It just gives you a bit of a chance if you've got the ability to do so. The other stuff is what comes first. And you know, if you and then so people are coming out of it with A levels and whatever and options and stuff, and also. A career in, in semi-pro football that could eventually become a professional career. You only have to look at Jamie Vardy, for example, for, mm-hmm. for that type of thing. So, as we say, it's the pathways, isn't it? it the, the 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 crossovers at the end and the start of the career that I think are probably the the most difficult points. Because while someone's fifteen-year career in the club in in, in football and that support available, that's fantastic. But it's whose whose duty of care is it once they leave the game, and at which point does it start and end? And I think that's the that's the challenge isn't it mm-hmm. overall mm-hmm. I think that's probably a good place for us to, yep. to to wrap up chaps thanks again for your for your thoughts and for your conversation and thanks to you the listener for listening along with us today if um if there are any current former footballers listening um, there are well-being services available at the PFA as we mentioned and you can access them on a 24 24/7 365 day hotline and that's 07500 000 777 so zero seven five hundred and if you want to learn a little bit more about what michael does and what his team does at the pfa just google pfa mental health and you can find some more information there of course if you are looking for any support any time of the day the samaritans are always available on 116 123 and you can also phone the calm zone from 5pm to midnight and that's on 0800 58 58 58. And before we finish, remember that the purpose of Man Markham is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation today, but we're asking you to keep it going. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to colleagues, even talk to strangers. But most important of all, please remember to listen, because sometimes listening could save a life. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you again on Friday. (laughs)